Well, hey, everybody, so great to see you, whether you're here in the room. And by the way, excellent singing today. I was talking to the band backstage. We loved what we just experienced together. But yeah, whether you're here in the room or joining us online from the cottage or from the boat in the sunshine, we're honored to have you along for the ride. We are in the fourth week of a five-part series called The Way Forward. And during this series, we're attempting to answer a really really great question. It's a question that's relevant for a whole bunch of us right now as well. The question goes like this, what can you do when you don't know what to do? In other words, um, what can you do when you've made such a mess of your life that you just can't seem to find the way forward? Like those times when you run out of answers and you feel more or less hopeless. And, and as I mentioned in the previous weeks, as a pastor, I regularly have conversations with people, always at Starbucks, who have reached moments like that, like this, for all sorts of different reasons. The people that just can't see past the mess of their present reality. And for some, it's a financial mess. Uh, for others, it's a vocational mess. Or, or maybe most commonly, it's some sort of relational mess. Like, like I'm telling you, in our world, messes can come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. And let's be honest, they're always challenging, especially with regards to how we should respond to them. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. In fact, in order to set the stage for what I want to talk about today, I need to ask you another question. Um, this one goes like this. Have you ever made a mess messier? <laughs> like, have you ever tried to clean up a mess in your life in a way that only made things Worse. I mean, I know I have. Um, and just for fun, I want to tell you how it went down. Uh, many moons ago, I was hired to paint a bedroom in a vacant house that a friend of mine was trying to sell. And as I recall, it was like middle of winter, and I wanted to take Sarah Ann away uh, without the kids to Traverse City, you know, and we were going to fund it by painting this, this bedroom. And everything in the paint job was going as planned really well until the moment when the homeowner walked in and startled me, like almost needed to change the undergarments, startled me. You know what I'm saying? And before you judge, I was singing along to some of my favorite 80s tunes with noise-canceling headphones on. And um, as I mentioned, the house was supposed to be vacant, okay? So anyway, as I whirled around to greet the interloper, um, I knocked the paint can off the ladder shelf where it was resting, and uh, it deposited its contents, how shall I phrase it, everywhere, right? <laughs> Including all over the brand new carpet. Right, and I'm like, who puts in new carpet before you paint? I know, I know. But anyway, uh, full disclosure, as a <clears throat> man of the cloth, <laughs> I am not accustomed to using profanity, but <laughs> I must confess that in this moment, I was cursing vigorously on the inside, okay? Yeah, uh, nonetheless, um, I assured my friend that I would clean up the mess in such a way that he would never know that it happened. In other words, I lied. And after a few minutes, he left me to tend to my mess. And over the next few hours, my situation pretty quickly went from bad to worst as I repeatedly poured large amounts of water onto the carpet in an attempt to dilute the stain, which of course didn't work at all. And eventually, I took this picture so that I would never forget the mess 
that I made. And then totally defeated and a little depressed, I ordered them some new carpet. <laughs> All that to say, my attempt to fix my mess only made things messier. And I tell you that story not only for a bit of group therapy, and by the way, thank you, I feel better, okay? But also because honestly, I think we've all experienced something like that in our lives. Like maybe you had a moment when you made a financial mess messier, or, or maybe for you, it was a relational mess that you made messier. Like, you know, you got in trouble and so you borrowed more or lied bigger or tried to destroy the evidence or made up a story or sent another text to try and fix the damage caused by the first text, right? And if you're honest, your actions only made matters worse. But, but here's the thing, and this is really good news. So now that I've got us all depressed, good news, right? Um, I'm convinced that it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, um, with the rest of our time together, I want to show you what I believe to be a far better option that we all have in even the messiest situation. And so to that end, what we're going to do is explore one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament of the Bible, um, and it's a scene from one of the most famous characters in the Old Testament, a man by the name of David, who lived a thousand years or so before the time of Jesus. Um, and as we enter this scene this morning from the life of David, you need to know a bit of context. You need to know specifically that David was in the midst of an absolutely suffocating, debilitating relational mess. And it was a mess that had been a long time in the making. In fact, the seeds of this mess had been planted years earlier when as a boy, somewhere between 10 and 15 years old, uh, David had been anointed king of Israel by a prophet by the name of Samuel, which I'm sure as a boy sounded absolutely fantastic until David realized that at that time, Israel already had a king. Uh, and he was a little insecure and his name was Saul. And so as a boy, David wisely decided to keep his anointing to himself and went about his family business. He was tending the family's sheep and basically living a quiet life. And, and that was his plan. And he did so until the day uh, that he was called upon to carry some supplies to his brothers who were fighting alongside the armies of Israel, led by King Saul, uh, and they were fighting a group known as the Philistines. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know the Philistines are always the bad guys. If you're a Star Trek fan, these are the Klingons. Wherever they show up, it's bad news, right? The Philistines were the bad guys. They were big, they were bad, and they were stronger. Uh, they had developed iron technology with which they made superior weapons. Moreover, they had a really huge advantage uh, because within the ranks of their infantry was a legendary soldier by the name of Goliath. And if you grew up in church, you know that story. Or if you read Malcolm Gladwell's book, you know the story of David and Goliath. But, but just, you know, in, in summary, David ends up joining the battle and he killed Goliath and in so doing quickly became the most famous man in all of Israel. In fact, following this battle, David was put in charge of Israel's armies, and he was able to secure a seemingly never-ending stream of military victories. So much so that the author of the account of David's life in the Old Testament recorded that during this season, he tells us, in everything David did, he had great success. And this is interesting, because the Lord was with him. It's like God was blessing David. He was basically raising up David to one day be the leader 
of Israel. But, but as awesome as that is, it also happened to come with an unfortunate consequence, uh, namely that King Saul, in his insecurity, began to see David's successes as a threat to his power and his influence. And so in response, Saul devised a plan to sort of try to control David. Um, and here was his plan. He invited David to marry his daughter, <laughs> Like, seriously, I, I think it's one of those, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer sort of things. But anyway, David, being a humble man on top of everything else, initially refuses. He says, listen, I am not worthy to marry the daughter of the king. But Saul's like, oh, no, you're going to, I insist. And eventually David did agree to marry Saul's daughter. And he agreed to pay Saul something in the ancient world they called the bride price. And generally that was compensation paid to the father of the bride. And it took the form of money or animals but see, in this case, Saul had something else in mind. He said to David, you know, in order to, for you to purchase my daughter, which is, I know, for us kind of offensive, but that's what they did in ancient times, I want you to slaughter 100 Philistine men. That's the price to marry my daughter. And I think Saul was thinking, hey, I don't have to take care of David. Uh, the Philistines will do that for me. I mean, no one can kill 100 Philistines. Well, after receiving the invitation to this bride price, David gathered up some men and went out and killed 200 Philistines because, hey, God was with him, right? And then he returns to present Saul with the evidence of what they had done. And if you want to read what that evidence was, you really should, but it's a little PG-13. We're not doing it here. Anyway, <clears throat> yeah. So not surprisingly, this unexpected turn of events made things even worse for Saul. His insecurities flared to an absolutely incredible level. And in fact, um, the author of the account of David's life recorded that when Saul realized that the Lord was with David, like God's hand was on David, and that his daughter, Michael, loved David, Saul became still more afraid of David and remained his enemy the rest of his days. In other words, King Saul came to hate David, so much so that the day eventually came when he tried to murder him in the palace in Jerusalem. And as you're reading the account, you're like, David, dude, get out of there. And finally, he does. David's like, he awakens to the precarious nature of his situation. Like, oh, the king just threw a spear at me. I should peace out, right? And so David and his men fled to an area in Israel called En Gedi. Uh, and En Gedi is a, you know, a, it's like a spring, but there's more of a region. It's southeast of Jerusalem along the western shores of the Dead Sea. And as you can see from this picture, it's a little desolate, Yeah. <laughs> Like, it's a mountainous wasteland, absolutely full of caves. And honestly, I think that's why David ran to this region. See, he knew that eventually Saul would come for him and that he was going to need a good place to hide. And so anyway, Saul eventually figures out that David is probably around the region of Engedi, And so he recruits 3,000 of his men in order to hunt him down. He's like, well, if he's in one of the caves, we're going to need an army to find him. Uh, and so Saul and his army of 3,000 head down from Jerusalem to the region of En Gedi, and they get into the region, and the author of the account, and I love this, provides us with this seemingly unimportant detail that Saul, upon arriving near En Gedi, needed to use the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And to that end, he sought out a random cave for a little privacy and to relieve himself. However, and you gotta love this, check this out, David and his men were far back in the cave. 
like the same cave. Nobody saw that coming, did you? Right? Yeah, I'm telling you, I have been to this region a dozen times now, and there are hundreds of caves. The odds that Saul would select the exact cave where David and his men were hiding is staggering. Like, it was a miraculous moment. In fact, David had to be thinking as he's watching Saul enter the cave, this is unbelievable. Like God has just solved my problem for me. And, and David's men, they saw it too because they whispered, hey, David, th this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Like this is the moment. David's men were confident that God had intervened on David's behalf and that he would soon be king of Israel. All David had to do was to kill the man who sought to kill him. And in their minds, he would have been totally justified in doing so. I mean, this would be self-defense. Like from their perspective, taking Saul out was a no-brainer. And so before I show you what happened next, I want to make an observation about life in general that flows from this story. Because honestly, I've served as a pastor now for over 20 years, and I'm telling you, the root of most messes is a breakdown in virtue. It really is. It could be your mess that causes the, or breakdown that causes the mess. And it could be someone else's breakdown that causes the mess. In David's case, it was Saul's breakdown that caused the mess. But, but I'm telling you, whenever virtue breaks down, whenever things like integrity and honesty and patience and generosity and self-control and goodness evaporate, life gets messy fast like every single time. It's only a matter of time. It's, it's like cause and effect. It's a mathematical certainty as we navigate life in a broken world. And moreover, I'm telling you, and this is um, the point I'm trying to make today, um, you don't fix a failure of virtue, yours or someone else's, with another failure of virtue, right? And this is the famous adage, two wrongs don't make a right. And more relevant to our conversation today, two messes don't make an unmess right? You, you, you can't clean up a mess caused by a failure of virtue with another failure of virtue. But, but here's the problem. Every mess in life comes prepackaged with some bad options. And those bad options always involve another failure of virtue. We, we tend to think that somehow I'm going to fix this mess quicker by compromising my values again. Or, or, or compromising my values for the first time in, result, in regards to someone else's virtue breakdown. So, so to fix this mess, I'm going to borrow more. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lie and cover up the evidence. And maybe I'll even get a friend to vouch for me. But, but again, a moral failure never, ever, ever, ever cleans up the mess caused by a moral failure. And in this moment, in David's story, that's exactly what he was tempted to do. Like, he could breach his values and fix this mess, or so he thought. That was the option that would have occurred to him first. Okay, so let's jump back into the story. Uh, the author of the account recorded for us that David crept up unnoticed to King Saul as he was doing his business, right? And we have to remember, in this moment, David would have had a dagger in his hand, and David was a warrior, like, if David chose to attack, Saul would never have known what had happened to him. Like, he'd just feel a yank on the back of his hair, and that'd be the last breath he'd ever breathe. 
But see, that's not, that's not what happened. Instead, as he was creeping up to King Saul, David realized something and he recognized something. Something deep inside of him went, wait a minute, this is a bad idea. Like, I'm about to murder the king of Israel, who also happens to be my father-in-law, right? I mean, I'm about to kill my wife's dad and my future kid's grandpa. Like, what am I doing in this moment? And, and, And if you think about it, David was on the verge of writing an incredibly embarrassing chapter into the story of his life. Like one day, he'd be sitting around the fire with his future children, and they would say, hey, dad, can you tell us the story of how you became king? It's so great that you're king, and we're like, you know, princes and princesses. It's so wonderful. I mean, what a fairy tale. How did this thing start? And he says, well, I killed your grandpa. (laughs) I kind of snuck up behind him as he was going to the bathroom and slit his throat, right? (laughs) Like in this moment, I'm telling you, David was about to make a decision that he would regret for the rest of his life, even though in the eyes of his men, it would be justified. And let's be honest, at some level, it's kind of what Saul deserved. Anyway, as the story continues, David silently approaches Saul, knife in hand, and check out what happens next. David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. (laughs) That'll show him. <laughs> yeah, right? And I'm telling David's men are like, what? Like, they're ready for him to slit his throat, and he's cutting off the corner of his robe. Like, what? They're thinking, what are you thinking, David? Why in the world would you cut off the corner of his robe? And that's probably what a whole bunch of us are thinking too, right? <laughs> like, why would David cut off a corner of the robe? Like, what would that accomplish? And if you spend any time around here, uh, the next part won't surprise you, but there's a bit of cultural context that is super helpful here. Um, Because as a Jewish man in the ancient world, Saul would have been wearing a robe over his inner garment, which was called a tunic. And as it turns out, generations before the time of Saul and David, God had given some very specific instructions to his people, the people of Israel, concerning the corners of their robes. Seriously. Uh, Here's what God told them way back Um, He says to them, throughout the generations to come, so moving forward, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. And he goes on, you will have these tassels to look at so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your hearts and eyes. Then he said, you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated or set apart to your God. Now, in the Hebrew language, these tassels are known as zitzit, or if you're from the South, tzitzit. Come on, I like that one. Okay, anyway, uh, yeah. Um, actually, it'd be tzit, tzit, but whatever. Uh, so, David, when he cuts off the corners of Saul's robe without him noticing, what he's effectively doing is removing one of the tassels that would have hung from each corner. And I brought with me um, my prayer shawl, because yes, I have one. Um, And you're like, oh, did you get it in Israel? May I be in the old city? No, I got it on Amazon. Thank you. (laughs) 
And I actually, I, I had the idea years ago, I, was, I needed one for a talk, and so I rush shipped it, and the guy that I ordered from emailed me, and he's like, this is like a zeet zeet emergency. I was like, get it to me fast, man. Okay, yeah. So anyway, um, this is my well-traveled, but you can see on the corners, um, there are these, these zeet zeet, and there's blue, a blue strand in them, and again, it's to remind the children of Israel to obey all of God's commandments. Saul is wearing this robe to remind him to obey all God's commandments. And you may recall that one of the Ten Commandments was um, incredibly relevant in this situation. Do not murder. But David cuts off the seat from one of the corners of Saul's robe. And his message to Saul, who, was, who wasn't unaware that this happened at the time, was clear. Like, you are disobeying God with your actions. And you have disqualified yourself to serve as the rightful king of Israel. What, what he does in taking off the tzitzit is essentially saying to Saul, listen, I could take you out, but instead, I'm going to trust God to deal with you. And, and I'm telling you, um, this is a great story, and if, if the, so far you've had fun with this, just wait till you see what happens next, because it's like a moment made for a Hollywood summer blockbuster. So here's kind of how it went down. Saul exits the cave, and there's like the 3,000 men that aren't watching because they know what he just didn't want to give him a little privacy, right? He gets back up on his donkey. He rejoins his men, and he kind of maybe gives them this passionate talk, like, now is the time we shall find David and get rid of him once and for all. And just in that moment, as they're about to roll out, David appears in the mouth of the cave, and he's holding Saul's zitzit. In his hands. And as I imagine, he's holding it up so everyone can see. And then he addresses Saul and his men. And here's what he says This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father-in-law, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but didn't kill you. I was close enough to slit your throat, but I didn't. He says, see, there's nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you. You are hunting me down to take my Life. And then he says this, may the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me. But my hand, my hand will not touch you. And I'm telling you, Saul would have been absolutely stunned. And Saul's men would have all been thinking, how could I creep over and stand behind David right now, Right? Yeah, because God's hand was so undeniably on David. I mean, not only was David a mighty warrior, not only was David humble, he was also merciful. He was everything that Saul wasn't. And so in this moment, Saul would have been absolutely humiliated and his soldiers, again, they would have stood in awe of what had just inspired because it was so clear that God was moving in their midst. And so after a few moments of awkward silence, Followed by a few more moments of awkward conversation. Saul looks at his guys and orders them to do the only thing that he could think to do. He says, we need to go back to Jerusalem 
And then the text tells us that uh, shortly after arriving in Jerusalem, a seemingly random Philistine arrow pierces Saul and he dies and David becomes Israel's king. And so that's the story from David's life that I wanted to unpack with you. Um, but I want to talk to you just for a few minutes about what I think all this means for you and for me. Because if you think about it, even though it's been 3,000 years since the time of David and Saul, the principle that every mess comes prepackaged with some bad options is still very much true today. And, you know, if you're here, you're like, mm, yeah, right? Because we've experienced that. And so given that reality, I want to offer you something to think about, especially if you walked in this morning because you were looking for some direction because you're in a mess and you can't see the way forward. And you can't believe we're talking about this right now, right? So I'll put it this way. Even though it's hard for you to believe right now, especially, again, if you're in the mess right now, at some point in your future, your mess will be reduced to one or two sentences that you will use to summarize what you experienced. It really will. Someday you're going to say things like, well, five years ago, I went through a really nasty divorce. It was the hardest thing that, that I've ever done. It totally rocked my world. Or, or four years ago, or, or you might say something like, four years ago, I mean, I, I had to declare bankruptcy. And it was humiliating. And it took me right down to nothing. And it was the most challenging season of my life. Or, or maybe for some of us, the story would be something like, you know, a decade ago, I spent a few months in jail. And, and, and I had to rethink my approach to just about everything. I mean, everything had to, had to change. It's like there's so much story and so much emotion tied up in so few words. But I'm telling you, almost every mess in life eventually gets reduced to just a couple of sentences. And so if you think about it, the real story isn't the mess. Your mess is your mess, and you can't really do much about it. But instead, I am convinced that your response to your mess, what you do in the midst of your mess, is the real story. In fact, I would argue that your response to your mess often shapes the rest of your life. Which brings me to the question that I want to leave you with today. And I'd argue it's the same question that David asked as he approached Saul that day in the cave, again, with a knife in his hand. And the question goes like this. What story do I want to tell when this mess is just a story that I tell? What story do I want to tell to my kids, to my grandkids, to my friends? If I move to a new city and they ask me about the turning points in my life, or I end up in some small group where people are being vulnerable and I just got to share, like, what story do I want to tell when this mess is just a story that I tell? What story do you want to tell when people hear that you went through a divorce a few years ago? Or what story do you want to tell when people discover that you had to declare bankruptcy? Or what story do you want to tell when, when people hear that you dropped out or even failed out of school? Like, how did you respond? Like, what story do you want to tell? Because I'm telling you, and this is our big idea for today, your story is shaped not, not by your mess. Your story is shaped by your response your mess. That said, if you're in the middle of a mess right now, I, I just got to ask you, you know, which of your options do you want to be a permanent part of your story? Not what do you want to do right now, but what do you want to knit into your story? And I, and I think I actually know the answer for all of us, if we're thinking clearly. 
we want the virtuous option knit into our story. Like the right option, the Jesus option, the option that brings more light and love and hope into our world. And so if you're here and you're navigating a mess right now, you should tell the truth. Even when it costs you. And you should apologize, especially when it's hard. In, in fact, in any and all things, you should take the high road. Because I'm telling you, that's always your best option. It's always the best way forward. All right, we'll pick it up there, actually land our series uh, next week. But for today, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll close our time together in prayer. And once again this week, especially with this content, if you're here and you just need to talk to somebody, uh, we would love to meet you under the screen to the left after I dismiss and uh, just pray with you. Uh, maybe offer a little uh, encouragement. But for the rest of us, let's close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you don't look at our mess and just judge us. You look at our mess and it breaks your heart because you love us. I thank you for not leaving us at our worst and thank you for always seeing the potential in us to move forward in a way that makes us more like Jesus. We thank you that 2,000 years ago you sent him among us as one of us to show us your heart towards us and to point us to the way forward. So for friends who've entered this space or friends that are watching online that maybe even have tears in their eyes right now, I, I just pray that you would whisper to them how much they are loved. And may they seek you as they build a future and move out of this mess. For today, we thank you, we bless you, we celebrate you, and we love you. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. Friends, grace and peace to you. Enjoy the sunshine.